Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. Welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Andrea Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. On this show, we've explored how artificial intelligence affects our lives, what the future might hold, and what kinds of considerations we need to keep in mind as we traverse the digital age. For musicians, digital technology has changed so many things, from how we learn music, to how we make music, to how we distribute and perform it. And we've learned a lot about what's happening in the brain when we listen to music we love. For a long time, music producers have predicted what audiences will want to hear and, for better or for worse, used algorithms to generate hits. But what happens when a neuroscientist teams up with a music producer? David Rosen is the CEO and co-founder of Secret Chord Labs, and his scientific work has sought to figure out what is common among popular songs and how they affect the brain. He's put that knowledge to work in his new venture, but today we're going to talk to him primarily about a paper he recently published on Harmonic Surprise, and the role it plays in the music we love. Can he build an AI that generates guaranteed hits? And what does that mean for music and musicians? David Rosen, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thanks. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So your recently published paper really caught my attention for a number of reasons. I feel like it answers a lot of questions that I often get asked when I give talks about music and the brain. So I'm really excited to talk to you about that and clear up some of the misconceptions. You know, let's start with the impetus for this work. What got you started on this path? Well, I was a graduate student studying music cognition and and creativity at Drexel University in Philadelphia, actually. So I was looking at music performance. Um, I have a bunch of work published about creativity and jazz improvisation. And uh, I was kind of in a unique situation as a grad student where... My lab, my lab advisor, uh, Dr. Youngwoo Kim, he came from uh, MIT, the Media Lab, which you know really embraced this like interdisciplinary kind of philosophy. And so I was in a lab as like the lone psychologist slash music cognition expert 
with a bunch of engineers who worked on work on like you know, a lot of digital signal processing, music information retrieval tools, like the kinds of stuff that Spotify and Pandora and those engineers kind of like, you know, signal analysis. And so Scott Miles, this was actually his baby, this whole project around popular music and expectation violation. He came to my lab, actually, we joke that he was looking for like, the best compliment for him as also a neuroscientist who's like a musician looking for an engineer to help him like explore this, this territory of like, what is it about, you know, popular music about the music itself that really like elicits a dopamine response. That was kind of like the, the core research question is there are there properties of music that elicit that and we crossed paths there because he came to my lab looking for an engineer. We joked that he got stuck with me, someone who has like the exact same kind of similar background in neuroscience and music. Um, and that's when the research really started. Um, he kind of came and, and we got a, our hands on on a uh, an annotated corpus of billboard charting songs from uh, Ashley Burgoyne, a previous uh, some some you might be familiar with him. He's you know been in the music cognition community. And his dissertation was looking at uh, from Johnny B. Good to Smells Like Teen Spirit from 1958 to 1991. His dissertation was basically annotating by hand all of the chords up to the seventh and the section boundaries of hundreds of Billboard charting songs. So that was to us, that was like literally handed to us. That was someone else's work. And from there, I think the inspiration from the work came from, you know, a lot of work that was published previously from Leonard Meyer you know, 1956, emotion and meaning in music, talking about how tension and release uh, leads to kind of emotion. And then David Huron in 2006 with Sweet Anticipation. Um, and he talks about the contrastive elements of music. And so kind of that's where the work really started was looking at tension and release and, and information theory around chords, properties of entropy and surprise, and seeing um, if there were different patterns of surprise in harmony among the top performing billboard charting songs, the top quartile, we, we group them, and then the bottom quartile across 33 years of billboard hits. Um, and that's like the first piece of research. That's the first paper that we published in 2017, where we found, you know, basically, there were two main effects, one of absolute surprise. So there was more harmonic surprise just across the entire songs of that top quartile, the top like billboard charting songs. And then there was also more contrastive surprise. So in sections preceding choruses, there was significantly more surprise in, again, the top songs compared to the bottom. And that's where things kind of kicked off and led us to kind of where we we kept building upon the research into the last study that was just published and and the company and such. Yeah, so let's go a little bit more deeply now into some of these findings. So it's interesting because I think for one thing, a lot of people consider Billboard chart music as being simple, right? That is, if you compare it to, there's a, there's a lot of kind of elitism in, amongst musical circles and conservatories often, this idea that popular music is somehow lesser than and certainly less intelligent than, you know, some of this wonderful contemporary classical music that is incredibly complicated. Yet here you are showing that the billboard is actually a way in which that, that demonstrates this objectively that music that is more successful is actually more complicated even within this popular genre. So I, for one thing, I would say it's fascinating to me that you have this kind of objective measure of whether a song is good, right? How many people bought it? <laughs> so to me, that's already like that makes it scientifically more sound than someone's opinion that a piece is, you know, Bach is better than Mozart or whatever. 
But I wanted to sort of ask you to sort of hear your response to this idea that billboard chart music is somehow simpler than some of the other genres that the conservatories revere. It is simpler. <laughs> I mean, so I'll, I'll talk about harmony. Let's stick. We can stick with harmony, and then we can. I can dive into like other features if we so choose. But stick with harmony is a simple example. Like it's all about exposure and expectation, right? This is like about neuroscience. And I'm a musician, and I've been playing. Just like to give a little bit of background, I'm a bass player and a pianist. Um, I've been playing in prog rock bands, instrumental rock, art rock that kind of like odd time signatures and like that kind of stuff for a long time. That's my like kind of cup of tea. Also have some background in jazz and like in the research and like that music is way more complex harmonically than what's on the billboard charts. You know, if you give it, take a pop listener and give them a jazz song, well, it's so complex that it's not even like recognizable. If I gave like a 16 year old who only listens to pop and gave them some like a Miles Davis the tune like out there from where like it's not even sounding like music that they are familiar with because it's drawing upon a completely different set of expectations and exposure so when we look within a a corpus of music like billboard it has that unique feature is that like it is being optimized for popularity and as you pointed out exactly why we wanted to use it is there's this like kind of objective measure in the end although you can say that that objective measure is not completely based on the music quality at all like no completely there's the that's when i first started this research that was my main criticism of this whole thing and uh, i was like there's no way that if you look at the top billboard songs and the bottom of the chart it's the billboards that you're going to find these different patterns of surprise within the chords or like anything music it's all about the artist's image and their identity and how much they relate to a certain like movement that's happening in culture because that's like such a central part of of popular music and and loving music is that it's aimed right popular music what we see is and this comes back into the overtime stuff is generally what you see is a cohort of 14 to 20 year olds, right? And those 14 to 20 year olds are the ones that are driving the commercial market. And so those 14 to 20 year olds, when the last group before them were 14 to 20, well, now they're at six, seven years ago, they're like in their childhood and they're in these like formative years of developing their implicit expectations of what sounds go together when they're children, right? And so the music that's happening then then needs to, the new popular music when those kids become the new cohort of teenagers now needs to build upon those expectations in some way, right? So harmony is one way that we've shown it happens. And like since then, we've now extended to look at, at melody and rhythm and dynamics and some other features because clearly, if you look at Billboard charting songs, it's not just like harmony takes you so far. Um, in those first analyses, you know, in looking at a corpus from, you know, in the, from the late 50s to the early 90s, really in that era of pop music was this sweet spot that we, we were doing harmony and we happened to have a corpus that was like full of, you know, R&B was taking over and like R&B and soul was a big part of the Billboard charts during that era. And that was like an extension of jazz with a more like upbeat, groovy rhythm section, right? But with still with complexity of chords, like, you know, I'm, with the bass, I was looking at like James Jamerson bass lines and playing with like Marvin Gaye and Stevie Wonder. And, and those songs, man, those chords are changing fast. And there's lots of altered chords and flat nines and all the kinds of complexities that you actually see um, in jazz. Let's stick to harmony for now, because I think we're, it's getting complicated fast. Yeah, yeah, we'll say it harmony. Yeah, so, so 
like, let tell me a little bit more about sort of the expectations and how what we know about how they develop implicitly, and then yeah, let's let's start there. Right. So for the time that you're we're in the womb, uh, we start to hear. I mean, just like patterns of sound that we recognize and go together. I think you know one of the simplest examples is like hearing the heartbeat of your mother and of I just had a daughter she's 6 months old now and and like the certain sounds or things that we would we would say that like soothe her after she was born that she only heard while in the womb and I think that's you know from the time you're born you're kind of there's a certain amount of you know this implicit sense of both to consonants there's tons of studies about you know just like responding um you know more positively to like consonant sounds and like simple that that ends up being like simple harmonies like ones fours and fives and same thing with like with kids that's why kids implicitly children young kids aren't going to like heavy distorted music and odd time signatures or jazz or classical music I mean, some classical music, it depends on, on, on what kinds we're talking about, because like that is baked in. There's like lullabies and such and things that are like, you know, not as intense as like Rachmaninoff. But, you know, I see it with her. It's like because we're there's this implicit nature to like have sense of like, you know, something about those those frequencies, the physics of that, how we respond to constants. It's almost a like universal findings universally across cultures that that's, you know, that's how people respond. And then eventually as you're exposed to music more and more, you start to kind of develop those expectations of, of what's happening around you. And so there's, I like to talk about uh, Carol Krimhansel's uh, cascading reminiscence bumps about this, because it's like kind of, it's, it's really interesting. It plays into this really nicely of, you know, when you're being exposed to music as a child, um, that's setting your expectation. And so, you know, I just kind of mentioned the, the thing about uh, teenagers moving into the next cohort and listening to the new pop music. That's like kind of a shorter time scale from when you first developed those those kinds of expectations. But also we see like the revival of music or certain elements of music every 20 or 30 years. And that's because, you know, the idea there is that like, you know, your parents and people around you, adults are playing certain music. And then that is like kind of becomes ingrained in that culture and ends up coming back in some way, if not ex- completely explicitly later later on. There's a lot of different components there. And like the taste down to an individual level, I think like really depends on what you've been exposed to and what kinds of expectations you have. And that gets, so that's, you know, gets really tricky because everyone has a, a unique, it's tricky and it's really cool, right? Because it's like everyone hears music differently. Every song that has a certain amount of surprise is like, while you can compare the songs directly, right? It's like the next step is to really look at the brain during these surprising moments and say, how do these people kind of respond differently to these songs based on their listening histories? And it's like an endless, you know, you can make some generalizations and claims about the music itself, like in pop music, because a lot of people who listen to that music, because it's made for the masses. So you can like, you know, you have more consistent effects for people that consume that kind of music rather than like, let's say maybe you're more nuanced listener who's all over the place and, and things like that, maybe. Yeah, I mean, you you make the comment right up front that the content of the music itself may matter less than whether or not the listener actually enjoys the work, whether they like that music. And I think that a lot of people could take away from, you know, the the kind of the work that you've described, this idea that there are even like relatively, I, I wouldn't say innate, but early um, preferences for the type of music that you're you were exposed to in the womb, that that seems like there should be these universals. And and so I hear this kind of push and pull in what you're saying is that yes, music is subjective. But there's also these features that we can extract that seem common. Um, So 
Can you reconcile those two ideas and, and where one, you know, is more important versus the other? Well, when we talk about this, the key metric that we always talk about is surprise. But that leaves out kind of the other half. Um, surprise is the like implicit system where there's like an ideal amount of surprise given, you know, har- we'll stick with harmony, in harmony, let's say, and that that keeps building upon itself over time because of like these exposure and expectation effects, right? The other part is the explicit aspect, the familiarity. And so we have this, this, this term that we always use, familiar surprise. Um, it's in, I think it's in the research as well. Um, familiarity draws upon all of the experiences. It's, it goes to the liking, right? It's like, when I was 12, I, me and these four other people who I became best friends with in the world went to our first concert and started to get into this band. And then like at my wedding, my wife and I danced to this song. And during this big game or something, this was playing in the background. And we have all of these, you know, when I was a teenager, like I, I built my identity. I, I don't know. That's, I was that one of those people like in high school. And I like picked kind of like, I made my identity like formed like almost things I'm doing today. I select, I like decided when I was 15 or 16 years old, decided to dive deep into like improvisational music. And like, that's all that mattered. And it was like social and it was emotional and it was like mind expanding. It was at this like, kind of error where I was, it was this time where like, you know, when you're a teenager, it's like, you don't really know all the options out there of like different ways of being and being an individual or like what that even means. And so I think the tendency is like when you're a teenager is like, you're really looking for like that social network and growth. And that becomes a resource to kind of explore something new that you have never been exposed to before with like a group of people who also want to do that. And that becomes an extremely strong bond. And that's like, there's a, that's the familiarity, right? It's like the context. I'll go back to that example with like jazz and and pop music. You know, if I'm someone who decided I'm listening to improvisational jazz from the time I'm 15 or 16 years old and like start to get into that stuff, well, you know, my expectations for harmony alone, maybe when I'm listening to pop music, I'm going to be like, "Oh, this is you know, this is kind of like similar to my my story." Like I I was in high school 18, 19, 20 years old and I dismissed pop music. And I was like, "Oh, pop music. Pop music is for you know, for the idiots who don't really understand music. And it's all about like just being sexy and like not really about music. And then I met a producer, a friend of mine, uh, his name's uh, Ben McGuinn. And he was doing some albums for us. And he was like doing all kinds of different production. He was really into like dance stuff. And like he taught me about on the production side of making something sound a certain way and like working with timbres and like working with synthesizers in a different way and like different mixing techniques to like make certain sounds just like really like sound. Pl- and there's this whole, that's like the timbral, I'm not gonna stick to harmony for a second. That's the, that's like the timbral aspects, right? And like the familiarity of like using like a sample where there's like a history of this, like, like if you know pop music, you know that this sample from this tune was used from like this song from the 80s. And it was right. There's like, that's the context and the familiarity and the explicitness of uh, music of like pleasure and enjoyment from music. And they're not I don't think I can reconcile the two other than to say that they both matter. And when you have the most enjoyment, it's when those two collide. When the, when you have the context um, and you have the appreciation for that or some kind of emotional attachment and the piece or the new song or the thing is also surprising in some way. So it like it like it works on both of your of our, our memory systems. Let's take a short break and we'll be back with more from David Rosen.
Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Calling all operatives. From now to March 30th, MGM National Harbor invokes your skills to play Covert Cash, a spy-themed kiosk game series where classified missions, hidden rewards, and daily thrills await. Sign up for MGM Rewards to play and unlock up to $25,000 in hidden free play daily and entries into our grand escape car drawing on March 30th. Visit MGMNationalHarbor.com slash Covert Cash to begin your mission. Must be 21. Please play responsibly. For help, visit MDGamblingHelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Yeah, and like despite the fact that I think a lot of us just as we get older and we get further away from that ideal pop music window, like, you know, 13 to 19 or 14 to 20, we tend to look at or listen to popular music and think, oh, it's so simple. It's so like what your paper is suggesting is that, in fact, it's getting more and more complicated. So tell us about the inflationary surprise hypothesis and then how your data supported it. Sure. So the inflationary surprise hypothesis says that basically the initial paper and the surprise effects of harmony that that increased surprise leads to um, increased in preference was looking as if surprise and songs across that era was like a constant static thing, right? So we were just saying, let's look at all of these songs from 58 to 91 and say, are the top ones generally, do they contain more surprise than the lower ones? The inflationary hypothesis says that basically over time, that kind of idea that there's these like different listeners in these groups and because of their expectations, each of their expectations are building on what happened previously. So you need to kind of, as you look forward, you would expect this inflation, if the inflationary hypothesis was in fact, uh, we found evidence for that, that the top songs would actually diverge more from the bottom songs in, in surprise by having more and more surprise looking over time. And so we said, okay, how can we investigate that? So we took kind of, I think it's pretty straightforward. We took uh, the 1958 to 1991 corpus and we said, okay, we're going to look at a ba- the first from 1958 to 1975. That's going to be just our baseline those first years. There actually isn't a big difference in harmonic surprise during those during that time period. We can dig into that if, if, you, if you would like. But the, and then the other corpus, we added a new corpus. This is the Seeker Chord Laboratory corpus where we looked at songs from 2000 to 2019. There were 600 songs in the Billboard corpus and there were over 5,000 songs in the 2000 to 2019 corpus. And so basically in that corpus, we looked at the first five years from 2000 to 2004 as our baseline. And so we just, we, we basically binned 2000 to 2004 and then every five years as a bin. And we just basically map harmonic surprise. And again, the top quartile and the bottom quartile in both of these, the old corpus and the new corpus. And we found this, a similar effect that yes, over time, we see a very significant trend of the top performing songs need more and more surprise over time compared to 
the Q4 songs is what, what we see more divergence there. And then so that to us, that speaks to, you know, this is like an effect of, you know, take an era. That's like a universal kind of thing. Pick a starting point and look into the future. And you should expect to see that, you know, you're going to have increases in surprise in terms of like underlying principles of the music that are, you know, one of many factors that are driving performance. So this particular uh, data set ends in 1991. Is that right? So there's two data sets. So basically for the, in- for the inflationary hypothesis, we took the old data set and then we have a new data set. So the old data set was from Johnny B. Good in 1958 to Smells Like Teen Spirit in 1991. And the new data set was from 2000. So like Say My Name, Destiny's Child through 2019, like Old Town Road. Got it. And so you compared these two and you, you found this, the effects in both data sets. And it, it was in both data sets. And I was really skeptical that in the new data set, so... You know, we were lucky enough to be handed, you know, the annotations from a previous, from Ashley Burgoyne's thesis with up to the seventh chords. Um, So there were over 300 chords in that first corpus up to the seventh. When we looked at the new corpus of songs from 2000 to 2019, we were only looking at the 24 major and minor chords. That was being done kind of by an algorithm that just does like kind of chord transcription at like a very basic level. And even with only those, when you look at information theory, right, and you would expect like a low kind of like a less chance of things to be surprising. I was wondering if that would still like, you know, hold and, you know, it it still did, even without the more, uh, more specific chord annotations, like things up to the set, like made distinguishing between dominant and major chords, even. Um, it's still kind of, is still held, although the bits of surprise in the top song were lower in that later corpus than the older corpus, if um, that makes sense, because there just was less surprise overall because of less options. So you've started this startup company, Secret Chord Labs. Uh, and I think, from what I understand, part of your mandate for your, for your company is to use artificial intelligence or use an algorithm to predict or create uh, songs that you that should be popular. <laughs> is that is that right? Yeah, we're we're careful about exactly <laughs> what we what we say it should do. I think I've been a creator. We've a lot of us in the company have been musicians for for quite a while. Um, actually, our CTOs I've been in bands with for like fifteen years. Jeff and and then Scott, uh, my co-founder, he's he's like been writing music since he was ten. And this whole kind of idea came about when he was like asking his buddy over and over for like ideas about the bridge. And we've all like been inside our our, our tracks and like wanting to know. You know, we've been working on it for a month and like wanting to know, like, is this was this the right move? Or like, what does this track need? And like, I don't have I don't have the resources to have like a like an artist manager or a record label executive. And there's more creators out there in the world than ever before. There's like it's crazy. There's like 74,000 songs uploaded to Spotify every single day. And there's more and more creators just like kind of want some piece of data which they don't have access to because they're not represented yet, but like they're really good at making music, but maybe they're not so good at like, you know, making a a decision of like which track to feature or like which version of the demo or which version of the mix should be the track that they push, you know, and upload to Spotify and, and put out into the world. And so I guess the hope with this is to say, you know, for any size artist, for any genre, we're creating a tool, a platform called Doper where you can upload your music and get a streaming projection and a doper score for you know any any new song and or previously even released song and it can help you make decisions and give you a data point that you would otherwise have never had 
And so this is like basically ba- based on now the several decades of work suggesting that dopamine levels increase as we have these relationships between surprise and expectation in music satisfied. And so like, is, is that, am I understanding that correct? Is that why it's called doper? It's because it's like, yeah. it's supposed to predict uh, like what the dopamine, yeah. Cool. Exactly. Exactly. It's called Dofer. Uh, stands for. We we went up and back about the name like lots of times. Um, you know, some some investors were like, "Oh, you know, Dofer like could sound like a drug reference or something like that." We're like, <laughs> "Yeah, but it's like it's dopamine optimizing production resource. It's really that's what it stands for." And we're neuroscientists, so like it'll work. So it's Dofer. Uh, yeah. Dofer without the e. <laughs> it's yeah. It's D O P R. And yeah, it's totally. It's based on that's like I think the bread and butter of the company is the expectation and surprise. That's like what the, we've taken the research, we've patented uh, that work and now new stuff from that. And like, that's, I think the differentiator from, you know, there's tons of out AI out there and there's lots of smart engineers who, you know, can, can say, here's lots of examples of things that were popular yesterday. Now take new music and tell me what's the most similar to the thing that was popular previously. That's generally how it works. And at my core, I'm a I'm a, I'm a creator, I'm a musician, I'm study, someone who's been studying like the creative aspects of jazz improv and flow. And like, if you don't have something in there, if you're trying to predict success, or like have any sense of like, where things are going, um, without a metric like surprise, which to me is kind of like, I always like say like, creativity is novelty, and appropriateness, if you ask me for two words to define it by like some some researcher, like people can generally agree to, to that. And then like the familiar surprise things, surprise is like novelty. And familiarity is like appropriateness. It's like based on your context. It's like your genre, your the, the band you're a fan of. And so, to me, without that piece, you're just a copycat. You're like you're kind of you're imitating. And like music is culture, and culture is always evolving, just like we are. So a lot of people ask me, and and we just did a, a four part series on inquiring minds on artificial intelligence and how it's going to shape our future. But they ask me, you know, things like AI's composing music is that is that really music, or you know, all kinds of things like that. I, I can imagine an application of your software, your tools, I should say, to create music. Is that something that you would ever want to do? Do you see benefits in that? Like. I think ultimately there would be kind of some cynical music producer who was like, I'd love to like write the artist out of the equation <laughs> and have Millie Vanilli, you know, come and just be a front person. But like, I can have control over whether or not we make billions of dollars. Is that, what do you think about that? Well, there's a couple of pieces there. I think like a producer making music is like, there's still a person there making decisions. So it's like kind of just, there's a little bit of a distinction between like the musician in like a kind of a more traditional way and then like a producer making music. You know, we talked about the generative space. It's not something we're really kind of like interested in doing directly. But there are, I think, cases where generative music, there's companies all, all over the place, like kind of making music for relaxation, you know, kind of things like that to like have certain brainwaves or certain moods and, and, and generative stuff. And like, I guess, you know, if you generate music, you can generate a ton of it. And like some of it's going to be good and some of it's not going to be very good. And I would say that for if a generative music company out there was in some way trying to evaluate which of their generative music was better than others for different uses or different contexts or different moods, that would be a useful application of the doper technology for someone who is in that area who wants to make generative music for one reason or another. I'm kind of like a music purist in that way of like, there's this creative process. And I very much see doper as like, 
kind of a tool that could be used almost like an AI producer or like A&R person in my back pocket where I'm making decisions, but the feedback that it's giving me allows me the freedom to make tweaks based only on information about surprise. So to give like a more concrete example, basically, if I upload a song, the technology, not right now, but will soon be able to, um, you know, give information at a feature level. So we'll stick with Harmony because we're sticking with Harmony. So for Harmony, it can analyze my song and it could say, hey, you're a rock artist. And it says that in this section, in this 30 second window, your harmonic surprise is way low than what like we have calculated this ideal curve of harmonic surprise to be given your genre. And so then as the artist, what that tells me is, okay, then here's a section of a song, I could try some things that Oh, maybe I that is like the section where I need to like have a bridge or like do something a little different because it's exactly the same. And then I can go back and try things and see if if I actually like what I've done better. To me, that's like a more organic use of how the technology would come into the music creation process that I'm really excited about. Kind of having people and having people understand creators too. Like that's like my dream is to have harmonic surprise as part of like the vernacular, just like tension and release is among the music creators themselves and like being like, yeah, let's like try this melody thing here, or this harmony, let's throw in this chord here, and like that turnaround, like will be different. It's like harmonically surprising. And I think that's really when we've know that we've made like a mark on the creation. Because I think we do it already. Like we tried to add surprise as as you know and like I know and people who've made music, it's like we don't want to just make the thing that we've heard a million times. Like that's a nice way to to really you know, learn about you know the music, the historical music, and to like get a certain like chops and vocabulary and phrasing and different things of of the past. But we want to build upon that not only on the on the historical side, but at a personal level. Like I don't want to just write the same kinds of music. I want to feel like I'm progressing. And again, that's another kind of way I could use this as as a way I could look at older songs or newer songs or you know different styles of music that I'm writing and get some some feedback about you know that hasn't previously been available about like my own writing style and like which features which ones I'm awesome. Maybe I'm great at dynamics and I'm great at melody, but I'm not so good at my like harmony. Mm-hmm. And you, there's a lot of insights to be gained, and we're just kind of starting to uh, you know explore that like feature level kind of analysis. Well, I think that your tools are an excellent way to to basically show people a case study of how artificial intelligence or algorithms can enhance creativity, can make us better creators, uh, and uh, I'm really excited to see it applied. I didn't. I didn't pay you to. I didn't pay you to. I didn't pay you to say that. Yeah, not yet. That means a lot. That really means. I mean, that really means a lot. When we're talking to real, like you know, people who really are like immersed in music and science and all of this, and like give that kind of, of feedback to what we're like working on. It's like means a lot. So I really appreciate that. Awesome. Well, our listeners can find uh, the paper that we've been talking about. It was published in Frontiers Human Neuroscience uh, on the 30th of April in 2021. It's called What to Expect When the Unexpected Becomes Expected. It's a lot of expectations. <laughs> um, Harmonic Surprise and Preference Over Time in Popular Music. First author, Scott Miles, we've talked about. So David Rosen, who's the second author on that paper. And what is your, so what is your, you're the CEO of Secret Chord Labs. Is that, am I getting that right? Yeah, somehow I became, <laughs> somehow I left grad school and like I was, I was, te- I became a CEO, I guess. Um, <laughs> awesome. Yeah. It's been, it's been, it's been great to like, I really feel lucky to have been able to like 
um, have a network of people from grad school and from a lot of this company are like people I've just worked with in the past, great friends. Uh, my, I have a friend, Rob, who I grew up with since I was six years old. He's owned record labels out in LA and he's an artist manager for 10 years. And he joined the company along with, as I mentioned, Jeff, who was in the lab and our other lead engineer, Sean. Uh, he came from the Met Lab at Drexel. And it was really just a, an effort of being like, hey guys, want to work on this cool thing that we're putting together? Scott and I like did some research and now we want to make this like a real thing. And I'm just like lucky to have everyone like stand by, you know, by us and help us build this thing. Awesome. Well, I, I can't wait to see where you guys go next. Thanks so much for being on Inquiring Minds. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. So that's it for another episode. Thanks for listening. And if you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. If you'd like to get an ad-free version of this show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, Jordan Millar, Kyle Rahala, Michael Galgool, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joelle, Stefan Meyer-Ewald, and Charles Blyle. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. This episode was edited by Riley Byrne. I'm your host, Andre Viscontis. See you again soon. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.